if one has explored uh, history of art and design, visual culture, architecture, and you're feeling ready to take the plunge to do postgraduate work, this is a part-time course which is taught monthly on Saturdays, nine Saturdays through the year. And again, it is really attending to this moment of 1851 to 1951. We will stray a little bit into contemporary practice in some of the special subjects. Some of the sort of mandatory core modules at the start will look back to earlier exemplars. But in effect, we're looking at the way in which designed objects, decorative objects, the built environment are wonderful markers of the transition from a pre-industrial world into the spaces of modernity. And needless to say, we are overwhelmed with pamphlets at the back encouraging you to come and study those. But I think we are two seconds away from start, so shall we begin? A proper formal introduction, as we're now core it. As I say, I'm Clara Marnie. I'm a lecturer here in the History of Art and Design, fellow and admissions tutor for Kellogg College. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you to a discussion of Paris, all of its wonders and delights from the mid-19th century roughly up to about 25, 1925. Now, you can appreciate how much I've reined in my natural enthusiasm. I wanted to stray backwards and look at the importance of the Rococo, equally to launch into the extraordinary practices that emerge after the Second World War. But I think it would be more helpful to concentrate quite resolutely on Paris as an inspiration as a demonstration, as it were, of our field of the history of art and design, architecture and visual culture. Now that is, for me, an extraordinary range of intersections between the world of urban planning and the built environment, which will be our first subject area, looking at Baron Haussmann's transfiguration of Paris into this spectacular city of boulevards and extended vistas of elegant apartment blocks and department stores, it is also very much the world of painting and sculpture. Here I'm thinking, obviously, of the work of the Impressionists, which captured and indeed transformed the novelty of the experience of Haussmann's Paris into that ineffable yet permanent array of images which populate our minds, as well as our coffee mugs, I fear, and our coffee table books. And then to look at the way in which that moment of the excitement, the novelty of modernity, then has quite different expressions around the turn of the century and indeed particularly after the First World War. A shift from this world of the spectacular into uh, a modernity which embraces technology as well as new ideas of what the Parisienne might be. And there I'm going to look particularly at the work of Sonia Delaunay, a very interesting half-Ukrainian, half-Parisian citizen of the world who was a great maker of textiles and fashion and was one of the star turns of the Exposition of 1925. But let's begin in earnest, and that's, as it were, the juxtaposition of time frame, Kaibot looking down from one of these new boulevard apartment buildings onto the street below, with its newly planted trees, its new street furnishings, all arranging what used to be a very congested, if wonderfully medieval, layout to the city and instead picturing it as a site of extraordinary novelty and inspiration. And as I say, Delaunay's flapper girls on the other side. Now, I've just chosen, as it were, a quite stark comparison here with photographic imagings of Paris in this period. 
in order to sort of immerse ourselves in what strolling around the city was like before the moment of the Baron Haussmann project. This is the prefect of the Seine employed by the Emperor Napoleon III to make a spectacular city for all the world to visit. On the right, we have a quite loaded image of old Paris. It's happily not scratch and sniff because I think one would be cognizant of the fairly limited facilities in that period for the correction of, of sewerage and what have you. It has a certain charm, nonetheless, however. This is the world of Victor Hugo's Paris, described in Notre-Dame de Paris, that it is precisely little tiny dark passageways where chance encounters, romantic or dangerous, can occur. Now, part of what the transfiguration that the image on the left suggests is precisely that this is a city now planned for an international audience. It is a city on display for a world public to embrace and enjoy. We are looking here at the famous Palais Garnier, the Opera House, and these extraordinary axial boulevards which cut across the Avenue de l'Opéra and Edine Haussmann, and beyond the framework of the Gare Saint-Lazare, reminding us that one of the key features of the so-called Haussmannization of Paris is not only getting air, light, good running water and facilities into the city, but to make it a place of easy access, both as a stroller on the boulevard, this is a very easy plan in which to orchestrate your maneuvers around the city, be you a shopper or, dare I say it, a soldier in times of insurrection, but also that you have a whole array of new railway stations, the Gare de l'Est being the first one opening in 1855, uh, attending the great exposition of that year, Queen Victoria arrives there, and the local avenue is named after her, the Avenue Victoria. Uh, but this, as I say, is Gare Saint-Lazare, which alongside Nord uh, and indeed later Lyon for the 1900 fair, become these key arteries which get you into the city to see all of its wonders and delights. Now, a little bit of raw data, in case anyone in the group imagines that the history of art and design doesn't deal with this kind of core cultural evidence it's just to give you a flavor, A, of our key protagonists. This is our, our hero or horror of the day. That's the Baron Haussmann. This is Napoleon III handing over him, to him the order, the, the official documentation, asking him to transform the city. This is the redrawing of the city limits. I think you get a sense of the degree to which the overall breadth and scale of Paris is understood to, to be transfigured, very much indicated there. And this is just to remind us of the poor daily experience of Parisians, of over 40 to 50 years of construction work. Between 1840, uh, well, 1850 really, and uh, 1890, one in five Parisians is a builder. Imagine. <laughs> it's an enormous project involving huge amounts of workforce, but also constant disruption, destruction, as well as creation. This is just to give you kind of core data. You get 11 new communes. The 12 Andes are expanded to 20. I've just chosen the sample of the new area of Montmartre, which used to be an exterior village but is incorporated into the city, uh, and how it extends from a mere 
6,000 in 1830 to 201,000, barely 50 years later, a colossal influx of humanity. And indeed, just think about how many bus tickets are being sold in that period. 40 million for the first World's Fair in Paris in 1855, just before the 1889 one in 1882, 20 million are being sold. So I think you have an extraordinary escalation of infrastructure and indeed just sheer mass of humanity engaging with the city. And I think that has both delights as well as difficulties. I thought it might be useful, as you've maybe not been to Paris within the last week, but have it in your minds, to get a sense of the sort of core structural changes. The first element that is put in place is the so-called Grand Croisé, the main cross, starting with the Rue de Rivoli, extending over to the Place de la Bastille, and then essentially from the Gare de l'Est right the way through the very volatile student Latin quarter up to the so-called Mont-Saint-Geneviève, uh, you may know around the Pantheon, that area. This first phase of boulevard construction is then followed by a subsequent uh, articulation of these upper districts. This is the kind of posh shopping area that we'll be looking at in a moment, but also linking up left and right bank through that main set of, of boulevard extensions. Now, what does one make of this? If you were to look at Renoir's picture, I think there is a sense of a wonderfully sunlit, radiant, appealing glimpse of a city on display. We have nicely grown trees, not little stumpy saplings. In practice, Hausmann was clever enough to realize that so much uh, interaction with constant construction would start to wear thin with Parisians. So notoriously, he did plant quite large trees in the middle of the night. So you'd come out in the morning, having had a tabula rasa, and then, hey, presto, in the morning, it's a sunlit uh, tree-filled boulevard. But nonetheless, I think Renoir has put us away from the axis of these key boulevards. We have a sense of strolling, of be being to scale, as it were, in the space of the boulevard, something that when we come to look at Kaibot, one begins to think is less assured. Now, just pop there on the bottom, the Emperor Napoleon outlining for us the sort of conflicting views of Hausmannization. Is it all about controlling the city? After all, if you've got great big boulevards, as I say, you can send troops down them to take charge. Or is it about creating a playground? a spectacle of entertainment, of shopping, of leisure, transforming the capital into the world's theatre of joy and pleasure. And this is something which I think is absolutely informed by the historical volatility of the city. And I've just put up there the key dates of revolutionary events. Imagine being born in 1779 and how regularly you're going through bloodshed in the streets with revolution. And I'm just giving you here, obviously, the 1830 revolution image by Delacroix. This is my Sonnier sketching from the life in the terrible bloody weeks of 1848. And again, Edouard Manet showing French civilian, um, military officers shooting civilians in the bloody week of May. 25,000 Parisians are killed by their own countrymen in that week. Now, that makes you have a very complicated view of your capital. On the one hand, it is full of palaces, it's full of cafes, it's a place of delight. On the other hand, 
it has been a place of absolute civil war at very regular intervals. And I think that's where Haussmannization, as Emperor Napoleon alerts us to, is always a mixture of spectacle and control. Now, I think one doesn't just want to look at economic or political history in order to contextualize history of art, architecture, and design. I think it's also vital to look at the writing of the period, the way in which observers of the moment characterize modern Paris. And I'm giving you here a, a quite long citation to have in the back of your eyes while we have our conversation. In order to underline the way in which a poet-art critic like Baudelaire is in many ways an interpreter, an apologist, a translator, if you will, of the experience of Haussmannization for a whole generation. And it is this persona of the flaneur, one of these quintessentially Parisian words, somewhere between bohemian, stroller, man about town, it is the youth who has utter freedom of the city and explores the crowd and all of its anonymity with both a sense of delight but also alienation. And I think that hugely informs our understanding of the works of Manet and indeed the next generation of painters, often called the Impressionists, who show at the Société Anonyme exhibitions held in Paris on the Boulevard des Capucines or in nearby um, ateliers, between 1874 and 1886. Now, Manet's wonderful early image of the music in the Tuileries, I think, captures that mixture of amiability and anonymity, which surely is a key impact of these transformation of the social space. At first glance, it's a morass of black suits and a few pretty elegant ladies. How does one's eye move through this crowd how do you negotiate that pictorial space? Surely that's exactly what Baudelaire's description of the flaneur is suggesting. It is a prince, an eye with an insatiable appetite for the non-eye, the pleasure of being both amongst friends, but also relishing a crowd that one doesn't know. And I've just done a kind of naughty plan here, if you don't happen to remember Manet's inner circle, of all of the different faces that one would recognize if you were part of, as it were, the, the Café de la Nouvelle Athènes, the new Athens Café where they all hung out, or the Café Gerbois, you would immediately recognize some of these visages as key writers and critics, Zachary Astruc, Jean Fleury, Baudelaire, key painters, Manet, Fontalatour, uh, Gauthier being another critic, but also a family member, Eugène Manet, who is the husband of Berthe Moiseau, as well as the brother of Édouard, or indeed Jacques Offenbach, the great composer of the quintessential Haussmannian operettas uh, like Orpheus in the Underworld uh, or, or La Belle Hélène. So this seemingly anonymous crowd as you start to alight more carefully on certain visages, turns into a set of familiars. And I think that surely is part of the experience of modernity. How many of us have been trudging through our life in London and you think, oh, it's one of those days where I know no one and everyone's rude and appalling. Suddenly you alight on a friend's visage across the carriage of an underground train and it's transfigured from darkness to amiability. Now I think that tension between friendly intimacy and a degree of alienation 
has a deep uh, relationship to the transformation of living conditions and, as it were, the uses of the different spaces of Paris. Now, I've included here a little diagram of the shape of one of the apartment blocks in about 1852, as it were, before Haussmannization. All of Parisian life is here. Here we have a servant's quarter at the lower level, the well-to-do echelons on the piano nobile, middle classes above, more modest classes, and then graduate students at the very top. This is precisely all of society passing each other on the stairwell. Now, that makes for a certain kind of familiarity. You would never mix in a deep social way, but you do have a sense of belonging. If you have wonderful new apartment blocks like these, built by the great entrepreneurs, the Perrier brothers, uh, very much underlining Zola's novel, the, uh, La Curée, The Kill, where Saccard is one of these great dealers in property and money, and it's all very nefarious and dark. You don't have that mixture of classes. The middle and working classes have very much been displaced out into the suburbs, attention we still think about to this day in urban planning. But again, I think the Impressionist image is much more one where brushwork, where the pleasure of light and trees helps us to manage that mixture of familiarity and alienation. We enjoy those little lickings of paint, as Zola describes them, characterizing the movement of the crowd. But we also have a substitute figure there standing in for ourselves to ease us into the experience of the composition. Less so perhaps in Degas and Caillebotte's images of the boulevardier of this period. I think very much an image here of the slightly disturbing dislocations that Paris occur to us. I mean, this is in no way uh, a critique of the fathers in the group, but one does slightly worry about the two little girls crossing the Place de la Concorde, utterly ungrasped, uncontrolled by the paterfamilias, the Vicomte uh, Le Pic, one of Degas' contemporaries and another exhibitor at the Impressionist shows. This vast expanse of nothingness, the mixture of traffic and then isolation, which is part of that boulevard experience, onlookers who are perhaps uh, an overlooked friend or a stranger. So I think Degas' images capture that degree of tension about the new boulevard with great insight. Similarly with Caillebotte, this extraordinary open expanse of the Place de la Concorde and the Degas is here transformed into the axial arrangements of the new railway bridges of Paris and the boulevards into the new apartment districts above the Gare Saint-Lazare. And I think we have a sense here of those working-class personages who've all been cast out to the periphery, placed nearest to that new technological structure and the little suburban trains that will bring them in and out for their daily work. But also this chance encounter I'm reminded here of Baudelaire's poem, To a Passing Woman, where he describes this extraordinary moment of glimpsing a beauty from afar and hoping that somehow they might have a life together. One is reminded of the end of that extraordinary moment in Citizen Kane, where he describes seeing a girl on the back of a boat that he knows he should have married, but he didn't stop her. This is that chance encounter being glimpsed but we're not given the resolution. Will they speak? Have they spoken? Will they pass each other by? This is part of the instantaneity of Impressionist narrative as well as Impressionist technique 
and indeed, I would argue, an absolute feature of the modernity of Haussmann's Paris. But it's not just about boulevards. It's about what you can acquire on them, how they can make your daily life richer, more fulfilled. One of the key things is the provisioning of Paris by this new, highly hygienic, very effective new food hall. There's a lovely little dossier exhibition on at the Dorsay at the moment. If you want to learn more about uh, the, one of the favorite architects of Haussmann and the Emperor Napoleon, Baltar, and this is a, a sort of later postcard remembering that. But interestingly, Kaibot not only explores the worlds of boulevards and elegant cafes and apartment blocks, he actually takes as one of his subjects the exquisite display of produce, which the new railway lines, the new market halls bring to the delectation of Parisians. But this spectacle is by far centered on the leisure entertainments of the city. And I'm naughtily taking two of my favorite images from my alma mater, the Courtauld, uh, inviting you to go embrace those, one of the best collections of Impressionist and Post-Impressionist work nearby to us in London. Sign up for the diploma, and I'll take you there myself. Uh, but there is, I think, here a glimpse of this world of spectatorship, privacy, and public life all being intermingled, an extraordinary differentiation between how our pretty Parisienne is absolutely on display for our delectation, every brush touch signaling a different texture, a different kind of uh, elegance to her toilette, the ruffles of the lace of her gown, the chiffon of the bodice, contrasting to that shimmering blue glancing light that comes off the satin of the main fabric of the dress, and indeed that tactile furriness of the ermine shawl. Her gaze invites our gaze. One wonders what's going on in the opera performance below. If this is the box, La Loge is very much the box, her eyes meet ours across the room. So the real performance, surely, if you go to the opera, is ourselves as the audience, as much as it is the performers on the stage, the curvature of the box makes us also question what our gentleman is looking at. One of the contemporary reviewers of the picture says, I hope she's a wife because if she's a mistress, she better look out. And there is a sense of him looking up to the so-called gods, les enfants du paradis. Uh, perhaps he's on the lookout. He's tired of this poor model who was in fact called Fishface, uh, not very kind uh, by the, the studio Rapin alongside Renoir. But I think it is precisely an image capturing that pleasure in looking and being looked at, which is a key impact of the modern Paris in its vehicle. Little signals with the, the language of the fans or the opera glasses creating possibilities for social encounters and interchange. Perhaps at the other end of the scale, one imagines that that opera box is possibly at the old opera house of the Rue Le Pelletier, still 1874. The new opera house doesn't open until 1879. And I think that's again worth remembering that the so-called Palais Garnier, designed by Charles Garnier, that we saw in that aerial photograph at the beginning, is begun under Haussmann and Napoleon III, but is really only put into use 
after that terrible moment of the Commune and the Siege of Paris in 1870, it really comes to the fore in the Third Republic. So these transformations bob along cross-regimes in fascinating ways. The Folie Bergère image, Manet's great last work, as it's so often described in the Courtauld, I think does also capture that shirking off of the tensions after the Civil War of 1870. Bear in mind that there were terribly constraining laws on public assembly after the siege of 1870 and the Commune of 71. You couldn't go to Café Concerts. They were all closed down, very close censorship on what kinds of songs were being sung. A lot of sedition, a lot of revolutionary thinking can be put in a turn of provocative phrase. So the reopening of big café concerts, like the Folie Bergère, here we are on the upper balcony level where all the bars are held, that you can see in Chéret's poster of the period. This is where, as it were, the nice expensive seats are, where you can rattle your jewellery, as Lenin would say. Uh, but this upper level, you just pay a cover charge and you can walk around and perhaps seek good company, or not so good company, uh, in the form of barmaids such as Suzanne, who poses for Manet in this image. And I'm just showing you the little sketch here. Given the constraints of time, I won't rehearse the whole argument, but in effect, this is a mirror behind with gold edging there. We see her frontal image, one of elegance, constraint, polite interchange, and something rather more troubling and fascinating going on in the reflection behind. Whereas in the original sketch for the work, we see all of those figures line up perfectly. Here we have a sense of very strange relationships of space. These bottles should surely be there, not there. This head should be there. All of it's floating around. Now, I don't think it's because Manet's had too much to drink. I think he's inviting us to think about the excitement and strangeness of the entertainments of Paris. Now, these are spaces where women perhaps could attend if chaperoned by a gentleman of the family, they could certainly explore this place, perhaps only with an auntie or if they're of mature years, on their own. The wonderful Galerie Lafayette, as I say, one of a whole array of department stores that emerge in Paris. The first kind of flagship store being the Bon Marché, uh, which is wonderfully described in a social history by a man called Miller. But the Galerie Lafayette is my bridge, as it were, to some of the debates of the later 19th century. We've really been looking at 1848 to about 1880. Now we're moving into the 1890s and over into the 20th century. This extraordinary palace of consumption, exactly what Zola's thinking of in his lovely novel, Lady's Paradise, adulterated to London by the BBC in recent days. But it is precisely this panoply of stained glass by one of the great uh, Lorrain art uh, stained glass makers of the period, but also this opera-like setting of vistas and boxes in which one can observe every form of porcelains, perfumery, bronzes, carpets, furs, mirrors, everything you want laid out for your delectation. And I think it's fascinating to observe the way in which a circle of modern French painters both relish old-style versions of French design cultures, fashion cultures, Degas' incredibly sensitive, attentive portrayal of the highly skilled profession of the milliner, 
uh, very much, if you will, an artisanal craft, which he is, if you observe some of his uh, poems and letters of the time, he very much aligns to his own artistic creativity, as opposed to the much more massive, uh, large-scale production that I think we're starting to see emerge in the department stores like the Galerie Lafayette. This is my plug for the Dorsey exhibition at the moment, Fashion and Impressionism. You will see this wonderful portrait by Bartolome of his wife and the very dress itself, side by side. It's a wonderfully imaginative display. Rarely can we get exact correlations like that. But what they've done is taken the Museum of Costume displays of uh, sort of crinolines right the way through to the big bustles and the more attenuated lines of the 1880s and juxtapose those actual dresses, those shoes, those hats, those parasols, with the wonderful images of the mid to late 19th century, inviting us to reflect on the degree to which those fashions, those design practices, are at the heart of the innovations of the Impressionist circle, both intimate portraits of wives. These three figures are all based on Monet's um, mistress of the time, a woman called Camille Dancieux. So again, much of the sort of play that we had in Manet's music in the Tuileries, playing with identity, are these women that we know or are these eternal feminine figures of uh, an ideal and generic type? Now, the Swiss artist mixing in the 1890s circles, flourishing in Paris, the so-called Nabi artists, the prophets as they called themselves, are figures like Bonnard, Vuillard. I've just chosen Valaton because I particularly like his sort of hard-edged style. But I think it's extraordinary that he makes a kind of modern-day triptych to the cathedral of consumption, which is the department store, evoking those wonderful stairwells. This is the Bon Marché that I mentioned to you, the first kind of flagship store in 1875. That becomes, as it were, the defined cruciform shape of a triptych on either side the patrons are precisely the ladies shopping or the counter jumpers leaping to attention to serve them. And I think Valentin's quite satirical wit is absolutely signaling buying, consuming, embracing the leisures of Paris have become part of the modernity of the city, replacing the authority of church and state. Now, just by way of conclusion, I want to just give us a little glimpse of the way in which these innovations of the 19th century do have very strong links and, and uh, legacies within the 20th century. That all of this delectation, enthusiasm, vitality of the transformation of Haussmann's Paris is just as significant for this generation before the First World War. And I'm just focusing on our figure here of Sonia Delaunay to stand in for that wonderful array of artists who come from every corner of the world after 1900. This is the Paris of the Bateau Lavoir, of Picasso and Braque, or indeed the Italian futurist, one of whose dancing pictures we have here by Gino Severini. But I want to signal the degree to which Delaunay absolutely envisions as it were, what I feel our discipline is about, the juxtaposition of the experience of the built environment, going to the Balbulier, 
the painting of it in this extraordinary frieze of all of the new dancing figures emulating Vernon and Irene Castle's new grizzly bear dance, and the extraordinary design practice of her own fashion in which she wants to capture the vitality, the simultaneity of watching a crowd of dancing young people by changing the very costume she wears from those elegant lines we just saw in the work of Monet or Valeton into this kind of abstract geometric cacophony of textures and styles. And I think that's the real stepping off point for the modernity of Paris. Of course, there's a very abrupt and stark rupture to this with the outbreak of the First World War. Again, lots of data there that you may or may wish to embark. I just draw your attention to 25% of Parisians live two to a room. 100,000 live in furnished hotels after the First World War. The city is not as badly devastated as somewhere like Bapaum, one of those Pas-de-Calais uh, cities, which is literally tabula rasa after the bombardments of the, the key years of the conflict. But Paris does have a big task in front of it in rebuilding, in rehousing the returning veterans, the dispossessed, who are seeking work in the capital once again. And I think this is where the modernist figures of Delaunay, but also vitally a whole generation of architects, interior designers, designers of decorative arts and fashion, absolutely reach a crescendo in this moment of vitality before the darker years of the Depression in the 1930s. And I'm just ending with this, my favorite Doctor Who trip back in time, which would be to visit the... Uh, Exposition Internationale des Arts Décoratifs Industriels et Modernes. So the international exhibition of, notice, decorative arts which are both industrial and modern. And I think that tells us a lot about the way in which this fair is trying to reconcile the tensions of a largely industrialized machine age France although France is always behind Germany, Britain, and America in terms of industrial processes. Nonetheless, it is entering that machine age and a determination to hold on to its traditions of elegance, grace, decorative skill that we saw in that wonderful milliner's hat making. And I think the very poster of the exhibition signifies that. Here we have the industrial processes of the factory signaled, but their smoke very quickly forms into a beautiful flowering rose. France is both cultured and machine adept in this period. The decorating of the Eiffel Tower itself by the Citroën firm, can you make out the words there? Uh, borrowed after the millennium with that wonderful use of squiggly lights that we have now. But it was first adopted by the capital for the 25 fair, an absolute cipher of the worlds of car production and the worlds of decorative art practice coinciding. And I think that's, as I just very quickly give you a glimpse of a set of pavilions at the fair, I think you get a sense of these cacophony, perhaps, but variety of modes in which art, design, and architecture extend forward into the 20th century. The great Le Corbusier, Charles-Édouard Généret, as he's known in Switzerland uh, by his name of birth, proposing a new, a new architecture, vers une architecture, towards a new architecture. 
and he creates this new spirit pavilion, Esprit Nouveau, in which very austere lines, the more functionalist forms, though nonetheless lavish in its use of leather materials, for example, or plate glass, but that is looking towards the modern architectural and interior design practices that we come to know and associate with our own decade. But alongside that, you have an absolute reassertion of the luxury Rococo traditions of France. So on the one hand, the new spirit of functionalist design, on the other, tradition of modernity and innovation. In the famous collector's house by Pierre Patou, also built in, con in uh, concrete. You know, it's not avoiding the new industrial processes, but it's deploying them in order to create a new sort of Parisian meditation on the mansion house. And this is just to give you a glimpse of the surviving remnants of that wonderful pavilion. The World's Fairs are extraordinary. 1855, 67, 78, 89, 1925. Again and again, Paris has this ephemeral moment of about six months from April to October where vast pavilions like this are created and then utterly pulled apart and destroyed. So there is again that spectacular culture. But this is just to show you the glimpse of the extraordinary array of decorative art that flourishes at the 25 exhibition, the lacquer furnishings of Rulman, Dunant and Lambert Rucki, this wonderful uh, silk wool covering by Stéphanie, and again these furnishings are very much embracing the sort of coloristic effects of Fauvist painting, or indeed the so-called secondary cubism of Jean Dupasse. So art, design, absolutely coalescing. And Delaunay has her own shop. Remember her little homemade dress that she wore when she went out dancing? After the Russian Revolution in 1917, all of her money and her family's position, very much tied to St. Petersburg, is lost. She's got to make a living. Briefly, she designs costumes for Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, but at the 25 fair, she secures the family fortunes for life by setting up this boutique of young, elegant Parisian fashion. And here we see those simultaneous dresses adopted to the vocabulary of 1925. Gowns to dance in, tennis outfits, swimming costumes in knitwear. This is the new fashion for the new woman, absolutely bringing together the worlds of modern art, the geometric painting that she and her husband, Robert Delaunay, are creating as Orphism in this period, but that that is deployed on the very bodies of modern Parisians themselves. Uh, and this I couldn't resist. I promised you Bugattis, I lied. They're actually Citroëns. But Bugattis are built in Alsace-Lorraine, so they are a French make, despite their Italian key figure as designer. This is the cover of British Vogue, showing us one of Delaunay's simultaneous outfits, but she even designs one of the new Citroën uh, B12s, which becomes the Parisian taxicab after 1925. Every film of that period, and I've just got a still here from a wonderful little documentary short, Frivolité, by René Lénaf, who designs for René Claire. Again, signaling there's a whole world of film and photography and set design we haven't had time to explore, but that the patterning of textiles, of painting, of 
car manufacturing all coalesce. This is the study of the history of art design, visual culture, as I understand it to be. And I hope to have persuaded you that both of these objects are of equal attention, of equal interest to us. The fabulous image of Tamara de Lempica racing away as the flapper girl par excellence in Paris of the 1920s, but this anonymous maker who creates this aluminium handbag for the more modest purchaser, this also captures the world of the history of art and design. So come and study with us. Come and continue your lifelong learning. Or if we can't tempt you, have a lovely day out in Paris. Thank you ever so much. Thank you so much.